Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world and the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about economic coercion. We're going to look at how globalisation has descended into a weaponized realm and what Europeans can do to protect themselves from the much more competitive jungle which has replaced the rule-based order which Europeans thought that we were living in. I'm happy to have an all-star cast to help us make sense of this. Liz Rosenberg is a senior fellow and director of the Energy, Economics and Security Program at the Center for New American Security and has been one of the leading thinkers on this collection of topics for a long time now and has done some fascinating work on what economic coercion means in a, in a US-China context and beyond. Jean Pizani-Ferry is an ECFR council member, a senior fellow at the, the Brussels-based think tank Bruegel, has lots of other affiliations, but we've also been working very closely together on questions to do with economic sovereignty. And he was one of the main authors of a really important report that we did on that topic with Bruegel earlier in the year. And the third up is Jonathan Hakenbrosch, who is a policy fellow at ECFR working on economic statecraft. And most importantly, in this context, he has been running ECFR's task force on protecting Europe from economic coercion and has produced a report which looks at 11 instruments to defend Europeans from economic coercion, which we'll be talking about later. So thank you very much to all of you for joining. Why don't we start with the, the big picture, the way that the architecture of globalization is, is being weaponized. And I think the heart of that question is to do with the US-China relationship. There are lots of people who have been using economic coercion, the Russians, the Turks, all sorts of other players. But the reason it's so systemically important I think is because the US and China are increasingly finding that the most effective way that they can compete with each other is through manipulating the architecture of, of globalization in different ways. And I think there's no one really better to help us into that topic than, than Liz. So can I go to you first? You wrote a report, Liz, in April with your colleagues at CNAS on, on economic coercion in the US-China relationship. Can you give us a short introduction to what the topic is, why we should be so worried about it, what kinds of things are, are happening now? Sure. Thanks. I'm glad to be here with you for this conversation. So I've been interested in the topic of economic coercion for a long time. It's been, it's an intellectual interest. It's uh, interesting as an analytical inquiry. And even if that doesn't float your boat, it's really clearly important, as you've just been saying, in the context of foreign policy and the bilateral relationship between the United States and China. Now, to be sure, as you also just pointed out, many countries, including the United States, have used economic coercion in other instances. and. That's notable, but given the significance of the prominence of these policies in the U.S.-China relationship, they are coming to define the way that the United States and China interact, and that also sets up major implications for the rest of the world, and that's one of the reasons why we're having this conversation today. The report you were mentioning that I worked on with colleagues in the spring tried to do a couple of things, and one of them was to catalog, if you will, some of the kinds of economic coercion that the United States uses in its relationship with China and that China uses in its relationship with the United States. And 
in the U.S. context, what we're talking about here, just a, a really short summary of what is a much longer list in this report, tariffs, uh, export controls, investment restrictions, sanctions, and other banking or capital market restrictions. Those are a sampling of what we're talking about here. And from the Chinese side, there's a, a variety of other instruments, including cutting off access to trade and to markets, specific company level targeting. There's the development of a, their form of an entity list, if you will, as well as the potential use of a corporate social credit system to tag and constrain certain economic actors, whether Chinese or foreign. And that's sort of the universe of what we're talking about here. I would just say that this is not, of course, the only way that these two actors are leaning on economic instruments to advance foreign policy or national security goals. There's also this realm of incentives or cooperative activities, economic activities that nevertheless may have the effect of constraining political choices or creating a kind of dependency or manipulation in a political relationship. So that's what we're talking about here. And I agree with the premise that this poses some serious risks and threats to those two actors and to many other ones in which they are in economic and political relationship. So Jean, maybe you've recently been writing about Trump's economic legacy. You've been thinking a lot about globalization and, and how that can be governed. How does the, the world that Liz just described change the nature of globalization? There are two questions we, we should be asking ourselves. First, is there anything new with, with coercion? And you could say, you know, sanctions have been with us for quite some time and the, the use of economic power for non-economic ends. True, but what's really, I think, is, is new, and uh, you alluded to that, is the fact that for the first time, for, for a long time, I mean, it's nothing to do with uh, relationship with the Soviet Union, the confrontation between the US and China is, for the time being at least, largely defined in economic terms. And each side uses economic power, economic might, to sort of uh, push uh, its interests and its non-economic interests included. So that's what's new, really, and that what Europe especially was not prepared for, because uh, Europe, as the paper uh, very rightly uh, argues, has been living in a world where the economic sphere and the geopolitical sphere were somehow you know, largely separated from each other. So that's the first question. The second question I wanted to ask is, is it something that's specific to, to Donald Trump's national economic policy, or, or is it something that may last even if he uh, loses the election? And certainly in terms of, of attitude, in terms of willingness to break the rules, willingness to, to have a very narrow definition of the national interest prevail, Trump is very specific. But in terms of the broader picture of this confrontation with China, and the economic character of this confrontation is not that specific. And it's likely that with a Biden administration, part of what we've seen would, would remain. I was interested actually in a, in a recent, uh, relatively recent uh, article in foreign policy by Jennifer Harris and Jake Sullivan, who are um, associated with, with Biden. And, and basically whose, whose main line is we've got to, to think economic relationship, international economic relation in completely different terms with the, the predominance of foreign policy uh, objectives. And um, the first sentence of the article is actually U.S. foreign policy makers now face a world 
in which power is increasingly measured and exercised in, in economic terms. And they, they go on saying that this, you know, how economic relations are managed should not be left to economists. It should be uh, mastered by, by foreign policy uh, people with their goals, which means, in fact, uh, in practice, economic coercion. So, Jonathan, you've been looking what this means in practical terms for lots of European governments and companies and consumers. What are the main forms of economic coercion that Europe's already facing and likely to in the future? Yeah, so I think broadly speaking for Europe, the, the challenge is, is threefold or it's it's three things that are worrying European companies and European uh, decision makers. And it's not just, number one, that the rules-based order is fraying through the bilateral competition between the US and China and, uh, you know, something that Europeans really rely on given they want to trade with the world and, and are oftentimes uh, big exporters. But it's also that when the US and China are going at each other, that creates collateral effects that that's the second point. And the really, really worrying part, and that we've seen recently ever more, is that actually in doing so, or explicitly in targeting Europeans, these two countries increasingly determining who Europeans can trade with and who Europeans are not allowed to trade with. And they tie it to specific goals oftentimes. And, you know, something that, that shocked Europeans was that when China, indirectly at least through the Global Times, which is, uh, of course, not a, not a completely free newspaper, but rather one of, of the Communist Party um, in China threatened to cut off medical supplies to the Netherlands in April at the height of the COVID crisis, simply because the Netherlands was considering a name change to its Taiwan office, which isn't an embassy already. So um, that's where you see that it gets ties, tied to concrete European policies. You've talked on the on the podcast many times about um, how Europeans aren't allowed to trade with Iran anymore, not because European governments say so, but because the US says so. And there's a number of other areas where, where things like these are happening. And to the point that we now see European state officials becoming targets, and this most disturbingly for, for Europeans from, from the US side of the project of Nord Stream 2, which really has, has shown to Europeans how vulnerable they are to these kinds of measures. And I'll just give you a list of the ones where we don't have instruments as Europeans to, to defend ourselves or to protect our state officials, our companies, and so forth. And those are punitive tariffs, where tariffs aren't just an unfair economic instrument, but where they get used to uh, as, as economic coercion, trade curbs, sanctions, export controls, data transfers, oftentimes cross-border data transfers. And those that's kind of the list. And export controls, I'll just say that sentence, that sounds very technical. And, and Liz has, has mentioned it before. But now, just this Monday, China uh, adopted its, its export control law, and it, it'll go into effect from December. And what China will be doing, what in some ways the US is doing already, is using its products, upstream products in a supply chain when, you know, European company is relying on 25% of US or Chinese products to produce its European product, not to produce an American or, or Chinese product, of course. And then they want to ex export that to a third country that's unrelated. Beijing and Washington are starting to say, you guys, you Europeans have to come to us and, and ask for a license so you can do that. So we want to determine if you can trade with them or not. So that is very, from a sovereignty perspective, but also from a company's perspective, this is uh, something that many in Europe are extremely worried about. So I'd like to look at some of the these specific 
issues and look at some of the the measures that Jonathan is, is suggesting that Europeans might adopt on it to defend themselves from them. But if we take seriously everything that Jonathan said now and also what the two of you, Liz and Jean, were saying earlier, what does this mean for the nature of the global economy in the future? I mean, how much, how far is this going to drive a process of, of decoupling? Are we going to see a world of, of kind of multiple currencies? In China, there's a big debate going on about this idea of, of dual circulation, where you can have a kind of internal economy, which is completely cut off from the rest of the world, and a Chinese economy, which is linked to the world, which is about external circulation. Is that going to be the reality for everyone? Just because having links with unfriendly countries is just too dangerous. Are we going back to the Cold War? No. (laughs) And there are a number of reasons for that. First, the dynamics of the Cold War economic separation was fundamentally pinned to the fact that we're talking about really different economic systems that did not have an enormous amount of economic interconnection and financial interconnection. And we're talking about a deep layering up of economic, financial, trade ties now. And I think it is appropriate to, so rather than just entirely different systems, it is appropriate to think about the ways in which some of these disputes or this weaponization or the use of this coercion will pull apart or sever links, financial and trade links in certain areas. And we are already seeing that. So that's something I've been looking at in the context of the effects of uh, U.S. export controls, which uh, the current administration has really ramped up quite significantly in the last year or two. And we're already seeing that showing up in some of the trade data. And I expect that that will continue, but it will look more like, I expect, kind of regionalization, including regionalization of supply chains a bit more broadly, not just in specific controlled technologies, rather than a pulling apart and bipolar kind of disaggregation. And one thing to say is that though that may be occurring in certain domains of trade, It's a different matter to think about currency and how that will function. And I would just say that it doesn't appear to me that the dollar is going to be unseated anytime in the near future. And frankly, the dissatisfaction, real as it may be, the critique of foreign countries, including many in in Europe, you know, of the United States weaponization of the dollar, the use of sanctions or other banking restrictions to control financial interlinkages, that is not enough of a behavioral economic force to pull apart the network effects of the dollar. And I think we've seen that pretty well and over the as in a couple of natural experiments in the last year and two. And that may be frustrating for many who seek to shield themselves from the power of those US sanctions. But I think we have a good indication that in fact, like it or not, they will continue to be quite powerful into the foreseeable future. Do you agree with that, Jean? Yes, um, roughly, yes. I, I think, you know, going back to what you were saying, this idea of decoupling, if we were to decouple, the, the problem was, would in a way vanish. I mean, we would, the, the world economy would fragment and the question of the interference of the geopolitical and the economy would be solved in a way, you know, solved in an undesirable way, but it would be solved. What I think we have to get prepared for is a permanent interference of uh, geopolitical 
actions go in a sort of a web of economic interdependence that remains largely in place. And that what was interesting, what uh, Jonathan gave the example he gave of the supply chain. You know, you ha- we have supply chain that uh, extend very widely. And at some point, you're telling a certain exporter, the product you've been using, perhaps inadvertently in your supply chain, is actually a US or it's actually a Chinese product. And this determines what you can do ultimately with what you build out of this product. And you could do the same with financial interdependence. And you could do conceivably the same with a sort of information interdependence. And the question then is, how can you address this permanent risk that interdependence is being weaponized in this, in this regard by you know, using the fact that you're relying on your sort of global sourcing as a way to control what you're doing? And I think in this respect that the most important proposal in the, in the paper is actually this idea of a European collective defense instrument, because it's not a particular instrument. It's not sort of targeted at a particular channel, be it finance, be it trade, etc. It's a sort of legal framework that I think you're intending uh, to, to put forward that would make it possible for the EU, first, to respond, and second, including to respond to a threat to a particular country of the EU by considering that it's a threat to the EU as a whole and that the EU, the EU can respond proportionately by using other instruments possibly. Because anything that has tried to protect from the reach of those sanctions has been relatively ineffective. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that this financial vehicle that was created by uh, the EU and the, and the UK or by, by Germany, France and the UK, Instex, to make it possible to continue trading with Iran has been used only once for 500,000 euros just to deliver medical uh, equipment to Iran. So it has been completely ineffective, which means that, you know, any very too finely targeted instrument, I think, is at risk of not, not being effective. And I think it's a sort of broader response, legally and politically, is what is needed. Jonathan, Jean's opened the, the field very effectively for, for this instrument. I think what is interesting about it is it's not about decoupling. It's about accepting that the reality is going to be one where people can weaponize interdependence. So therefore, Europeans need to be able to, to fight back and to deter action if other people are trying to instrumentalize relationships against Europeans. How would it actually work? Yeah, that's that's right, Mark. And, and what Jean and Liz said, I, I couldn't agree more. It's precisely a recognition recognition of the fact that there will be interdependence still, and we want that, of course, as Europeans, and there will be asymmetry. So Europeans are not going to dethrone the dollar. But if the US acts the way it has uh, in recent times, of, for example, denying the, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court a, a bank account and even credit cards by listing her or threatening to cut off European trade uh, with Turkey, with all kinds of sectors in Turkey, just because Erdogan was doing something that uh, Donald Trump was, didn't like. And there's China which is the bigger threat, of course, and not a, not an ally like the US, which it should remain, of course. But so the idea of this instrument is to give the commission as a centralized entity in Brussels, um, the power that the European market has, but that it can't use to defend uh, member states, 
or the EU as a whole at the moment? Because at the moment, the Commission can react if there's an unfair trade practice. We have the, they, they have trade defense instruments. We've seen them in practice at some points against tariffs from the US. But it can't react to, say, an economic threat that goes to the heart of the national sovereignty of, of a member state, for example, uh, tax policy, or the question of, do you, of energy security like that Nord Stream poses, or if state officials like a mayor get threatened. So what the Commission could do under this instrument would be to react with a countermeasure, which is legal under international law. And I'll just say two sentences about the legal stuff here because it's so important. Because in and by itself, the WTO doesn't allow for unilateral economic action. And we don't want to do that as Europeans um, because we think we believe in rules-based trade. But the WTO doesn't cover these kinds of national sovereignty issues and threats to national sovereignty. So under broader international law, you're allowed to take a countermeasure against an internationally wrongful act. And uh, the WTO does provide for a security exception for when, when it's about your essential interests. So for example, protecting a mayor, protecting a state institution, your tax policy, your foreign policy choice on a certain, you know, narrowly defined, of course. And under this, in those circumstances, the commission could then take action in areas where Europe is strong and where others where the cost is, would be too high, hopefully, for others to use action against Europe because Europe could react. And and I'll, I can give you a few examples and all examples and all of them are difficult and new things to think about for Europe in a way because we it's nothing we want to do, but we may be forced to, um, in reaction to, to a threat. So we could, for example, levy fees on, on cross-border services um, or block trade in services even for in, in certain areas. We could toughen data transfer restrictions. Europe is a big data market for many companies, many Chinese and American companies. Um, we could toughen investment provisions. We could um, impose restrictions on public pro procurement markets for non-European companies. And particularly creative ideas that we suspend enforcement of certain provisions under protections under TRIP. That is a contract that governs intellectual property. So imagine we don't enforce a certain intellectual property rules on foreign products, say on a Hollywood movie, for example. Now, these are creative, rough, you know, and, and, and tough ideas. But the, the reality is, as Jean said, if Europeans don't do anything, They might remain vulnerable and China is just getting started while we hope that the US will, will always treat us as a friend and, and ally like, like we want to be. So Liz, what, what do you make of this idea? There's a lot of interesting ideas. I'm really I'm keen to see how these develop and what they look like. I agree that these are some tough ideas. I was just trying to consider, you know, it, it, it sounds surprising to my ear to hear Europeans talk about stepping away from enforcement of rule of law. So non-enforcement of, particularly on intellectual property, actually, that I understand the desire to defend one's sovereignty and push back against uh, coercion. On the other hand, it does seem to me a difficult stance and surprising to, to move to the direction of not enforcing rule of law, whereas in fact, you know, leading by example would suggest that you want to stay close to that. Another thing that I've been thinking about is, well, what would it mean, the countermeasure, if, for example, I think you said a German mayor or state official is threatened, what is the countermeasure there? Would you like to threaten the U.S. ambassador, for example, or the Chinese ambassador to Germany or the secretary of state or the secretary of treasury if they're being threatened by sanctions? I mean, what does that look like? Would you like to freeze their travel and banking access in the EU? I'm curious to know what that could look like. So 
I think Jonathan would agree. I mean, it, these are quite tough uh, measures to take between allies, surely. And it really brings into great tension the relationship. Something I hear from Europeans often is that, you know, they Europeans need Chinese investment and trade as they do with the United States. And how to find a balancing point is incredibly difficult. I just want to say one other thing here about export controls, for example. You know, they have a purpose here, a, an important purpose, uh, including in the domain of controlling dual-use weapons or nuclear WMD technology. And Europe, in fact, has strong, good export controls of its own. And I think there's a way to proceed here where export controls aren't merely viewed as a thorn in the side and uh, creating extra cost and complication for Europeans. But instead, thinking about, Jonathan, your point about the difficulty of licensing, I think actually you're making an argument for a safe harbor for friends and allies of the United States or perhaps China in certain instances, rather than arguing against them. And maybe this, dare I say it to a bunch of Europeans, but maybe this is a let's join together kind of situation. We all have concerns about surveillance and commercial espionage and data theft and about proliferation of WMD goods. I think we might aim towards collaborative work on updating export controls together. Well, I think there's a there's a massive agenda which which hopefully can be looked at in terms of joint measures on all of the issues that you talked about, Liz. But one of the the tricky things which happened with the secondary sanctions which uh, the Trump administration introduced on Iran was that there was a real fear of of some of the ec- forms of economic coercion that you described being used against public officials in Europe. They're even, you know, not just private bankers, but but even central bankers who were worried that measures might be taken against them if they, if they uh, facilitated trade with with Iran. Big companies like Total and Airbus had to cancel their contracts with Iran. Jean, how, how do you think it would have worked if we'd had this collective defense instrument in place? Would we, have, you know, what's the equivalent? Because the thing about the effectiveness of dollar-based sanctions is they're very rarely even introduced. It's got a, a preemptive effect. So the fact that people were even talking about these things made it much too risky for them to to have any trade with Iran. Yeah, you just mentioned Total. I was struck by the, the press release published by Total two days after the, the, the sanction. And Total basically said, we're, we're pulling out of Iran. And, and they said, we're pulling out of Iran because we have the U.S. as a market. We have one third of our shareholders in the U.S. And we are doing uh, 80 or 90% of our business in U.S. dollars. So anyhow, we're much too much linked to the U.S. economy to consider having trade with Iran. So basically, this shows that any business is going to react in the same way unless you're a very small business with no U.S. interest at all and uh, no need to, to trade in dollars and, 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 and no shareholder in the U.S. Otherwise, any company would react in the same way. But I it's suppose been- Iran, in a way, is an easy situation because it's so asymmetrical. But what would happen if a future U.S. administration introduced a similar measure towards China? That would, de- to Iran? Would, would probably depend, you know, I mean, the... Uh, company would, would then choose on, on the basis of their interest. But I think the interpenetration with the U.S. is still so much larger. 
because it's not only trade, it's also investment, it's also data, it's also patents, it's also finance, it's also currency. We're much more in, in linked with, with the U.S. economy. I think, you know, mostly it would go in the direction of the, the blackmail being, being effective, which again shows that it cannot be solved by particular instrument. And I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about your idea of a, how do you call it, a European export bank, yeah, um, because it's a sort of, you know, improved index, and I don't see why it would be very effective. I agree. Well, first of all, with, with Liz, of course, and I'll come back to that and cooperating across the Atlantic, which we all would love most, I think. On the export bank, uh, Jean, I think the main difference here would be that this is something that would be a fully public institution and uh, fully backed by, uh, you know, you could imagine President Macron and, and Chancellor Merkel um, uh, founding this institution and backing it up politically. So, so I think excluding it from SWIFT and going against it and sanctioning is technically possible just as much as before, but you raise the stakes and, and, and you hope that someone on the other side of the Atlantic will also be interested in good transatlantic relations as we are. And, and that brings me to the... Um, but basically, you're emphasizing my point, which is that what matters is really to raise the stakes and to turn sure. yeah. it into a political conversation with the, whoever uh, exercises sanctions. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, and and on cooperation, I think I think many Europeans feel like you know there was good cooperation um, on Iran on the JCPOA, and then and then it wasn't the Europeans who who wanted uh, who to stop cooperation. And it feels like they feel like I mean you know a lot of committed Atlanticists like myself and like others, I think probably everyone on the call feel like there is a risk to Europeans that these that cooperative transatlantic relations in the economic sphere only in the economic sphere on, on sanctions on export controls and so forth could be a partisan issue in the US in the future and even if we get to President Biden where things will hopefully and probably be a lot better and, and easier to deal with between the transatlantic partners there might be something else ha coming after four or eight years and i think europeans will always be open and hopeful for cooperation they're the feeling here in berlin and and elsewhere is that it's washington that isn't always interested in it well we will be doing lots of podcasts on channels for possible cooperation after the 4th of November on this podcast and very much looking forward to, to discussing that with you. We will put up a link to this paper on protecting Europe from economic coercion, which has got the collective defense instrument that we discussed at some length and another 10 instruments, uh, including the export bank measures against personal sanctions, digital currencies, a whole series of, of other measures, which I hope that you will enjoy reading and, and circulate. But before we bring this podcast to end, we have one thing left to do, which is our, our bookshelf segment. What's yeah. on your bookshelf, Liz? Something I've been reading with great interest recently is Barry Eichengreen's How Global Currencies Work Past, Present, and Future, 2017, and it just had a reprint. His earlier work from 2011 on uh, the rise and fall of the dollar and the future of the international monetary system is also a classic, but I recommend them highly to anyone interested. Fantastic. What about you, Jean? I've put on my desk two uh, very thick books by historians, one by uh, Julian Jackson, that's his bio of De Gaulle, which is interesting for someone who's been uh, reading and, and, and listening from, uh, from domestic sources about this man. 
And the second is uh, uh, Julia Lowell's uh, Global History of Maoism, which tells you something, the fact that those two books are on my desk, about the, the time of period we, we're going through and uh, you know, where we are trying to go back to to understand better what's going on. And what about you, Jonathan? I've also just read the book that Liz uh, mentioned, but I'll, but I'll say another one. Albert Hirschman, National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade. It's an old book, but, it's, but in, it talks about asymmetries and geoeconomics and uh, how they weaponize asymmetries between countries. It, it came out in 1945. It d doesn't describe as much the 30s and 40s, but the time before, especially leading up to the First World War, and sometimes sounds like a description of the, of the world that we live in now, um, frighteningly so. A wonderful text. I've got a, a very small book, but which is quite intriguing, called Redefining a Philosophy for World Governments by Zhao Tingyang, who is a quite sort of conservative Confucian, neo-Confucian Chinese philosopher, which is laying out some of the Chinese ideas about connectivity, which I think are quite relevant for the, for the world that we've been talking about. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or on ours. Above all, if you could head to Apple Podcasts and give us a positive review or rating, that would be much appreciated. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Liz Rosenberg, Jean-Pizani Ferry, Jonathan Hackenbrosch, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel.